So good afternoon and thanks for being part of the conversation. Uh, many of you will be familiar with me and so um, I, I teach here and over at RMC and I just want to point out that we've thanks to my colleague, Holly Garnett, um, and some other members here from Queens. Um, there was a collective decision that uh, we had a collective responsibility to try to make sure we have a broader sort of more informed public conversation around some of the key uh, policy issues that are bedeviling us in this election and to which we're all trying to find uh, some different ways forward and I don't want to say solutions because inherently this is all up to debate and that's what democracy is about and so we get to let the people decide but hopefully we can have a bit of a more informed discussion thanks to some of the expertise that we have uh, around the table here today. And so this is the first of four roundtables, three of which will be held at Queen's uh, in collaboration with the School of Policy Studies and the Department of Political Studies, one of which will be held over at RMC. Um, and I guess I should also acknowledge, in uh, having spent time in Australia, that we've adopted this tradition here in Canada, um, the welcome to country, so to acknowledge that we're here on Anish Anishinaabe and uh, Haudenosaunee territory, and I want to pay tribute uh, to the First Nations elders, past, present, and emerging. Uh, Warren maybe the director of the School of Policy Studies, who would normally be here to um, welcome you, is unfortunately not here to do so, and so I guess I welcome you uh, on his behalf. Uh, but the good director that he is and the good former department head, uh, he knows it's always important to use opportunities to cross-promote other events. And so I draw your attention tomorrow to uh, the macroeconomics lecture uh, by Dirk Kruger uh, from 4 to 5.30. Uh, um, which is also a joint effort by the Department of Economics and the School of Policy Studies. And you'll see some of the posters for that around. That's over in Kingston Hall in room uh, 101. Uh, and then next week on October 10th, uh, there'll be William Broom, who's the executive in residence at the School of Policy Studies, who will be speaking on how the public service prepares for the federal election. And those of you who have followed along know that there's a senior committee of deputy ministers that are monitoring, among other things, things, attempts to interfere in our election and that have the ability to brief um, the, uh, uh, the parties and the senior civil service and uh, possible mitigation or intervention strategies that may be necessary. Um, as a final point on this, uh, the questions, if you could ask those using your Slido app, apparently, that would be fantastic uh, because then Celia will moderate those and those will apparently magically show up on the screen. And that way we kind of have a nice uh, flowing record. And so um, for the panelists, since we have four panelists and sort of we have three sets of, uh, um, of, of questions that I've asked them to prepare some remarks to, uh, I've tried to ask them to limit themselves to three minutes. That's inherently difficult for professors because we're being paid to talk for three hours on end. Uh, so uh, we'll try to hold everybody to account, but I would also then ask that you do likewise for your questions and you not ask three minute questions or interventions that you actually try to sort of keep your comments uh, and limit your comments so that we can maximize the time that we have together. So inherently, if you're wondering why the answers are perhaps short, that's precisely because I've asked the, the, uh, the panelists to kind of limit their answers. So inherently, they can't pack everything into three minutes. But if there's something you might like them to expand on, um, there's, a, there's a good opportunity for you to do so. So our panelists here. Uh, so Kyla Tianhara, who is the Canada Research in Economy and Environment and is an assistant professor in the School of Environmental Studies in the Department of Global Development Studies at Queen's, but who has, uh, doesn't just study the environment, she also practices it in the sense that uh, she has degrees from the Netherlands and from the UK and originally from British Columbia. Uh, so she has seen many parts of this country and, uh, and the world. Uh, here and we're delighted to have her here as Queen's as one of the faculty members in a Canada research chair. Um, my colleague Stephanie Schwinard to my right here is assistant <coughs> professor in the Department of Political Studies and Economics at the Royal Military College and she's cross-appointed here to Queen's. She works on official languages and minority rights and her main research topics uh, along with that of federalism, intergovernmental relations, constitution <coughs> politics. Uh, you'll likely have seen her um, uh, commenting on Canadian and Ontario politics on either the CBC or on Radio Canada uh, as she is fluently bilingual and so this is one of the little tidbits about Stephanie that she's an avid 
Scrabble player, but she only plays it in one of the two official languages. So you'll have to figure out which of the two languages you want to challenge her in and which of the two languages you don't want to challenge her in. Um, Alicia Corbett, uh, besides uh, Stephanie Schwinard, is a PhD candidate in political studies. Um, she's a former senior researcher with the National Inquiry into Missing and Murdered Aboriginal Women and Girls. She's of Irish and Cherokee descent and the recipient of the 2019 Jean Royce Fellowship. Uh, Alicia studies Canadian politics and gender politics with and focus on the representation and misrepresentation of missing and murdered Indigenous women in the media. Uh, she also tells me that she's an avid coffee drinker and nap taker. So for the next hour, just stick to the coffee, not to the nap. Um, and then um, uh, Jenna Healy, who joins us from the Department of History, um, is a specialist in the uh, in the history of medicine with a PhD from Yale um, and an assistant professor and the Hainer Chair in the history of uh, medicine uh, here at Queen's. Uh, what makes Jenna particularly interesting is that uh, she's crossed point to the Faculty of Medicine and is responsible there for integrating the humanities uh, curriculum into medical education. And her specialty is North American health policy and she focuses on reproductive technology, fertility industry in the United States um, and she was also at one point in a past life a competitive tap dancer uh, so uh, so you can see that you know even though we're academics we're also all still human beings so uh, we'll have three sort of goes at this so why don't I give everybody an opportunity to make sort of one set of sort of opening remarks uh, to get the conversation going and Kayla may I uh, may I start with you sure uh, thank you very much for that introduction and thank you to all the organizers. Uh, I think it's a, a great session to have. Also, we were commenting at the outset that awesome to see an all-female panel, so um, great to see everyone else here. Um, so I've been asked to speak about the environment. Um, that's, I think, a, too big of a topic uh, for me to cover. I'm just going to stick to uh, one issue, which is uh, big enough in itself, which is the climate crisis. Uh, I think that it's pretty obvious to anyone who's been uh, uh, paying attention uh, over the past few weeks that climbing, climate change is a defining issue not just for this election, uh, but for every election for the foreseeable future. Um, so I, I believe that this is a defining uh, and critical election, uh, but the thing that worries me the most is that uh, we really just don't have any time to lose ground on this issue. Uh, so the science is crystal clear that if we don't act immediately, uh, then things are going to start to get really bad uh, a lot quicker than anyone would like to believe. So um, one thing that me wasn't mentioned in the intro is that I actually spent uh, the last 10 years living in Australia, uh, and I'm a dual citizen. Um, and so I've already voted in one federal election this year uh, in Australia back in May. Uh, and unfortunately, that was very much billed as an election about climate change, and all the, uh, the polling uh, beforehand suggested that the vast majority of Australians were concerned about climate change and wanted action. Uh, but the outcome uh, was very much uh, what the coal industry wanted rather uh, than action on climate change. And my great concern is that we will see something similar happen here in Canada, where it's the oil industry that wins out uh, at the end of the day. However, there are uh, optimistic uh, places to look elsewhere. Austria just had an election, and some people are calling uh, the outcome uh, having been influenced by the Greta effect. Um, if you're not familiar with Greta Thunberg, she's a Swedish teenager who sort of has galvanized this huge student uh, strike movement um, that saw um, 500,000 people in Montreal uh, marching last Friday, and 800,000 people across the country, 7.6 million people across the world. Um, so this Greta effect has apparently um, helped the Greens to have a huge swing in the electorate. Um, so there's the possibility that we will see something similar here in Canada, although obviously it's difficult um, to move that kind, of, um, that kind of swing into actual seats because of our electoral system. Um, but I would just say that um, the vast uh, majority of research and polling suggests that Canadians and the majority of Canadians in every single riding uh, believe that climate, the climate is changing. Um, I think that the major problem now is uh, connecting that to what is actually needed to be done uh, to address the issue. It's unfortunately not just a matter of changing light bulbs and converting to electric cars. Uh, we need a radical overhaul of our economy. So that's um, all I'll start with and I'll turn it over to the next speaker. 
Thank you once again for having me here today. I'm happy to be on this all-female panel, as we mentioned, and to be speaking to health issues. Um, so you may be wondering why a historian has been asked to speak about health issues, and I think there's a good reason for this in terms of the pharmacare debate. Uh, pharmacare is undoubtedly the most major health policy issue in this election, and unfortunately it has been a major issue, health policy issue, uh, since the 1960s uh, when we first passed Medicare uh, legislation, and it has been an ongoing sort of cyclical promise uh, every 10 years or so uh, that a national party is finally going to take leadership uh, on this issue. Um, and so a major event this year in June 2019, uh, Trudeau had appointed an advisory council on the implementation of national pharmacare. Uh, this has been a trend also in the history of pharmacare to a appoint a panel to produce a report to sort of uh, recommend, make recommendations on pharmacare. This has happened once again uh, cyclically, but the last one was in June 2019, and that was headed by Ontario Health Minister Eric Hoskins. And it provided a number of clear recommendations, as well as a very clear timeline and roadmap for building a national pharmacare program. Uh, that report's available online, and there's a lot of good summaries of it, and I think it absolutely lays out what we need to do um, very clearly um, to, to successfully implement a national pharmacare issue. Um, it's interesting when you look at the recommendations of that advisory council because they're eerily identical to the one uh, the, um, in 1964 when the Liberals appointed something called the Hall Commission uh, to make initial recommendations on Medicare. And so this is a couple years before we passed the Medicare Act in 1966, which gave us um, sort of the outlines of our current system. And I just want to read you a quote from that 1964 report that said, in view of the high cost of many of the new life-saving, life-sustaining, pain killing and disease preventing medications, prescribed drugs should be introduced as a benefit of the public health services program, uh, which also basically could appear in the 2019 report. Uh, there was a recognition in the 1960s that drugs were getting more expensive and also more essential for therapy, um, and that has only increased, right, in 2019. Uh, not only have drugs become even more expensive, especially for the average person, um, they also are essential to modern therapeutics. Uh, it is estimated that one in five Canadians cannot pay for medication, and this includes Canadians who have private insurance, either through their workplace or through some other means. But through combinations of deductibles and co-pays, uh, it's still basically unaffordable for one in five Canadians to pay for health-saving medications. In 1964, it was recommended that we create a national formulary and basically an essential medicines list that lays out the best drugs that we should cover um, and that every Canadian would be able to access any drug on this list with a $1 fee. Uh, this is the exact same recommendation that we have in 2019, except now we recommend a $2 fee, uh, which is actually a little bit under inflation in this case. Um, and so I guess what, what I want to highlight is actually the continuity in this debate over time. Uh, it makes great economic sense to have a national pharmacare program. Uh, by 2028, we'll spend over $50 billion on prescription drugs. Um, but if we nationalize this, there can be a lot of cost savings in terms of bulk purchasing and negotiating with drug companies. Um, and so it's estimated that it would cost the federal government $20 billion, um, but that it would create a huge amount of savings overall in the amount of money that Canadians are paying for drugs, um, and of course, improve their access to those drugs. Thanks. Okay, thank you, Christian, for the introduction, um, and thank you, Queens and RMC, for having me here today to discuss uh, Indigenous issues in the upcoming federal election. Um, I'd also like to personally thank the land that we are on today. Uh, this land belongs to the Anishinaabe and the Haudenosaunee, and I hope that the discussions that we have here today, um, which we are very fortunate to be having, um, will somehow benefit the land and its people, just as it has benefited us. Um, discussing Indigenous issues in 10 to 15 minutes is a difficult feat uh, because Indigenous issues encompass most, if not all, of the issues that we are discussing here today. Things like healthcare, the environment, and the economy are Indigenous issues. And with that being said, I do only have about 10 minutes to talk. So I'm only going to discuss what the parties themselves have committed to in this election. Um, and I'd first like to point out that the Conservative Party has not released its full platform yet, and what it has released um, does not include any mention of Indigenous issues. Um, so here are just a few issues that have specifically been addressed by some of the parties. Um, implementing the National Inquiry into Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls' Calls to Justice, implementing the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, implementing the TRC's Calls to Actions, ending the gap in childcare, 
uh, adequate health care on and off reserves, infrastructure on reserves, Indigenous land rights and sovereignty, Indigenous culture and language revitalization, and Indigenous businesses. The list does go on, uh, but the way that I'm going to be talking about these issues today is in six broad themes. So the first is going to be about reconciliation, uh, the second is going to be the state of reserves, the third is the environment, the fourth is social services, the fifth is the economy, and the last is Indigenous state relations. Thank you. Um, it's uh, my pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for uh, for coming to uh, this talk. Thanks to Queens and RMC for uh, for having me, and thanks to Christian and Holly for uh, for organizing this. Um, so, official languages is something that's at least that I consider to be essential and foundational to Canadian identity. However, I think we can all recognize that it's not the most sexy item on a voting platform, on an electoral platform. Um, however, 2019 is a special year for official languages because we celebrate this year the 50th anniversary of the Official Languages Act. Uh, the Act has changed a fair bit since in inception in 1969, uh, but the fact is the Official Languages Act has not been fully renovated by our legislators since 1988. And so if you consider how we use languages, how the government uses languages, to, community, to communicate to Canadians and the kinds of services that are expected of the Canadian state. Uh, a lot has changed since 1988, and the Official Languages Act certainly does not uh, correspond to uh, English Canadians and French Canadians' uh, expectations of uh, what uh, the Canadian state should do uh, with uh, official languages. So there's been uh, quite a lot of work been done, both by civil society and by parliamentarians, on what we should do about uh, modernization of the Official Languages Act in the last few years. Uh, the Fédération des Communautés Francophones et Acadiennes du Canada, the uh, umbrella organization uh, that uh, essentially are the spokespeople for all of uh, French Canadians who live outside of Quebec, who are in a more vulnerable situation than uh, French Quebecers, obviously, who are a majority on their own territory as well as the Quebec Community Groups Network, uh, who is the spokespeople for Anglo-Quebecers, uh, have done a tremendous amount of work to uh, bring a proposal forward to parliamentarians about what a new official languages act should look like. The Senate Committee on Official Languages uh, has also published a huge report last May uh, giving incentive for uh, the House of Commons to act on this. And uh, the Official Languages Commissioner himself has also published a report on uh, what he sees as uh, some of the weaknesses of the Official Languages Act. So there is no dearth of suggestions on the ground right now uh, regarding what we should look at in uh, the Official Languages Act. Um, so far, uh, and as Alicia said, the uh, conservative platform is still missing, so I can't really speak a whole lot about what they'll promise. But so far, all parties have committed to modernizing the Official Languages Act, but they have not committed to any details as to what they would do with the Official Languages Act. Uh, the uh, Liberal Party has promised to uh, look at the powers of the Official Languages Commissioner, uh, who has a pretty, uh, pretty weak um, mandate as things are. Um, Supreme Court bilingualism has been discussed by uh, the NDP and the Liberals, but neither of those parties are offering uh, any commitment beyond nominating or appointing Supreme Court uh, judges that would be bilingual, so no enshrinement in law. Um, online cultural content in both official languages is a new ticket item this year. Um, if any of you uh, follow politics in both official languages, uh, you'll remember that uh, Netflix was a huge ticket item for uh, the Liberals in their past mandate, and the fact that Netflix uh, had not previously committed to producing content in Canada in the French language. Uh, so this is something that they're promising this year. Um, and uh, something that's interesting, and this is a 
newcomer uh, on the list is that indigenous languages are addressed uh, as possibly becoming a part of the official languages discussion this year. So both the NDP and the Greens are uh, discussing indigenous languages among official languages, despite the fact that in Bill C-91 that was passed by the Liberals this year, uh, indigenous languages for the first time in Canadian history have legal recognition, but not as official languages. So this is probably an ongoing discussion, and I look forward to hearing more about what the parties will have to say about this. Thank you. So you got a sense of some of the major policy issues as well as our panelists sort of take on these policy issues. And so we'll have two more rounds of interventions. Um, initially, I'll be asking the candidates to tell us what they think, how different parties and different candidates, uh, both locally and federally, have handled these particular issues. And then on the second go around, I'll be asking the panelists to tell us a little bit about what they think deserves more attention or hasn't gotten the sort of attention or perhaps the sort of angle uh, that they would like to see on these particular issues. And so uh, if I may, perhaps I'll start in the reverse order and I'll start with, uh, uh, with Stephanie with regards to how the candidates and uh, parties have handled um, the issue of her expertise. So the first thing that I would notice about official languages in this election is not the contents of the promises, but the use of the official languages in the elections per se. Uh, the parties have uh, had some hilariously bad takes in French. If you follow Twitter or any kind of social media, there's been a lot of very embarrassing mistakes, and this is on all fronts. Uh, so, so clearly on the communications front, federal political parties have a long way to go in order to address French and English Canadians on the same level when they make promises. And I think social media is a particular problem because of its instantaneity uh, as opposed to uh, press conferences and so on where the message is prepared and looked over. Uh, Twitter in both official languages is a is non-stop form of entertainment for anyone who uh, takes uh, the time to look. Um, so again, the Conservatives, uh, they've promised the Modernization of the Official Languages Act. Their representative, Alupa Clark, is uh, actually a, a pretty strong member on the House of, uh, House of Commons Committee on Official Languages, but as to uh, how much he can get his party to promise uh, in terms of, of real promises for the modernization that's yet to be seen. Uh, the, uh, the Conservatives have promised that their platform would be available before advanced polls start on October 11th, so we may have another week to go yet, but their platform is apparently coming. Uh, one thing uh, that's missing, and I'm not going to go through all of the, the promises, one thing that is, uh, that is missing from all parties, and this is something that both uh, the Official Languages Commissioner, the Senate, and uh, minority uh, communities have been wanting is the creation of an administrative court to, uh, for, for French and English Canadians uh, to go to when they feel like their language rights have been violated. So the way that this goes now is you make a complaint to the Official Languages uh, Commissioner and they will write a report, say yes, you're right, or no, sorry, your rights have not been violated, and then you may decide to go to federal court, which is a huge undertaking for an individual Canadian. Uh, and sometimes the official languages commissioner will go to court with you, sometimes he or she won't. Uh, so, so it has led to uh, a lot of official languages violations uh, to not be prosecuted. And when they have, it's been essentially a slap on the wrist. Uh, so it hasn't had a whole lot of clout. Uh, so communities are, are requesting a tribunal that would look a lot like a human rights tribunal, where individual Canadians would have access to this tribunal. It would not cost thousands and thousands of dollars to uh, claim the respect of uh, their official language rights. And so far, none of the parties are addressing this, which I find very interesting, considering the consensus among other parliamentarians as well as civil society on this front. Okay, so I'm going to talk about um, what each of the parties have committed to uh, based on the six sort of broad electoral issues I'm going to be talking about. So the first is reconciliation. So the Liberal Party, the Green Party, and the NDP have all committed to continuing a path of reconciliation with Indigenous people. Uh, all of the parties, except for the People's Party, um, have committed to implementing the United Nations Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. The NDP has promised that they will develop a national action plan for reconciliation and establish a national council for reconciliation. 
they're also committed to creating a healing and restorative justice system, as well as establishing a National Day for Truth and Reconciliation, uh, which was born out of the TRC. The Liberals, Greens, and NDP have all committed to implementing all 231 uh, calls to justice from the inquiry's final report and continuing to commit uh, to the TRC's calls to action. Um, the People's Party and Bloc have made no mention of the TRC or the inquiry. In terms of the state of reserves, um, the Liberal Party, NDP, and Greens have committed to ending boil water advisories and ensuring that there's proper training and infrastructure on reserves to avoid future boil water advisories. Um, the Liberal Party and the NDP have also outlined a framework for First Nations policing on reserves. Uh, the Liberals, NDP, and Greens are also committed to providing high-quality, affordable uh, housing and infrastructure, as well as improving food security in northern communities. Um, further, the NDP and Greens uh, promise to increase on-reserve funding for emergencies. The NDP further outlines uh, its plan for Indigenous communities by promising high-speed internet in rural communities, and they also have promised that the mold crisis that uh, is present on a lot of reserves uh, will be a top priority for them. Um, the People's Party wants to increase private property ownership on reserves to um, foster self-determination. In terms of the environment, uh, the Liberals and NDP promise that all Indigenous communities will be off diesel and will uh, instead be powered by clean and renewable energy sources, but have not given a date as to when that will happen. Uh, the Green Party has committed to working with Indigenous peoples to address climate change and ensuring that Indigenous people would benefit from the jobs created from a green economy. In terms of social services, uh, the Liberal Party and the NDP have promised to co-develop a healthcare framework that ends discrimination against Indigenous children. Uh, the Greens and NDP are committed to supporting healthcare services that incorporate Indigenous practices, as well as uh, they've promised to increase access to post-secondary uh, education for Indigenous youth uh, by removing the 2% funding block. In terms of the economy, um, the Liberal Party states that it will create a national benefits sharing framework uh, for major resource projects and it ensures that 5% of all federal contracts are awarded to Indigenous businesses. The NDP's economic plan for Indigenous communities is jointly linked to its plan for uh, increasing infrastructure on reserves. The Greens, the Bloc and the People's Party have not stated any specific economic policies for Indigenous people. In terms of Indigenous state relations, um, the NDP, Liberals, and Greens all state that they want to have a nation-to-nation -nation relationship with Indigenous people, respecting and recognizing Indigenous sovereignty. Specifically, the Green Party rejects the Indian Act, and it will allow nations to opt out of it. Um, it also promises to create an Indigenous Lands and Treaties Tribunal Act to establish an independent body that will decide on specific treaty and Aboriginal claims. The Green Party also states that it will include Indigenous representatives in its new intergovernmental, intergovernmental uh, collaboration initiative, which I won't get too much into, but this is the Council of Canadian Governments. So they are saying that there will be representatives of all Indigenous uh, communities in this. The Liberal Party promises to create a new National Treaty Commission's office that will review, maintain, and enforce Canada's treaty rights. And the NDP states that it will recognize and respect Indigenous treaties. And finally, the People's Party states that it will explore options to replace the Indian Act um, and opt for sort of a new policy that promotes self-reliance and equal rights and responsibilities of Indigenous people. Thank you. So I mentioned before the, the Hoskins-led um, Advisory Council on the Implementation of National Pharmacare have a set of recommendations. Um, this commission was... Um, uh, instructed to form by Trudeau's government, uh, and in their 2019 budget, they have earmarked funds uh, to sort of start the process that was laid out by that panel, uh, including the creation of a, Canada, a Canadian drug agency uh, that will start to negotiate and create this, uh, this national essential medicines list uh, that will help guide which drugs will be covered by a national pharmacare program, and that's an important first step. 
Though, uh, interestingly, when we actually look at the platforms themselves or what is now currently available from the parties, only the NDPs and the Greens have actually committed to following uh, the recommendations as laid out in that report from 2019. Um, the Greens said they would follow the model entirely as laid out and basically follow the recommendations of that expert panel. Um, that involves having a national pharmacare system that is really um, funded by the federal government, uh, that there will be cash payment transfers to the provinces, uh, and there will be no increase in cost to the province, provinces themselves if they agree uh, to sort of meet these new national standards in terms of which drugs should be provided uh, on the public system. The NDP uh, also say they will follow the Ho Hoskins plan, uh, though they claim that they will get Pharmacare in place by the end of 2020 if elected. Um, the way the plan is uh, laid out now is actually it's supposed to be complete by 2028. That's the timeline uh, laid out by the federal um, uh, advisory council. So I'm not sure how the NDP thinks that they will get it all done in a year. I appreciate the ambition. Uh, they definitely have a sense of urgency around the fact that Canadians are having difficulty affording their medication and the health impacts that's going to have. Um, but it's also quite a complex issue that's going to involve significant negotiating with drug companies in order to get those prices down, uh, as well as to negotiate with provinces. Um, to have them agree to opt in. Uh, one of the major functions of that Hoskins model that the Greens and the NDP support is that provinces cannot be forced to join a national pharmacare program, just like they could not have been forced to join the national Medicare program. Health is a provincial jurisdiction. Um, and so the Hoskins Commission rec recommended that provinces can opt in or not if they would like, um, but they were only eligible for cash payment from the federal government if they do agree to national standards. Um, the Liberals themselves have said they're going to um, keep investigating Pharmacare. Uh, they've offered a $6 billion down payment for their various health pro uh, uh, promises, including national Pharmacare, improved mental health, uh, and increasing the amount of primary care. $6 billion is not enough, and I think a lot of people were a bit taken aback uh, considering that really by the end of Pharmacare, it's looking like maybe up to $20 billion a year uh, from the federal budget will be required in order to fund this. And so they have the commitment in place that they want to follow the model, um, but the money, where the money is going to come from or the promises of the, the financing um, are missing from the Liberal platform. And lastly, the Conservatives uh, do not want to, uh, are clear, even though they have not increased, uh, released their official platform, that they will not be advocating for a national pharmacare program. Instead, they want to work with provinces to address the existing gaps in coverage. So each province has sort of a patchwork of plans. Some people are covered by their work plans. Some people are covered um, by various provincial programs covering seniors or children. Um, and essentially, they want to just keep uh, plugging those gaps. Unfortunately, that sort of gap approach does not get at people who have various types of coverage but can't afford the deductibles and co-pays. Those are sort of an invisible population that's very, very hard to pick up on the policy level. So without embracing a universal pharmacare platform, uh, it's very unlikely that any policy changes will help those people um, who can already not afford um, drugs under their current uh, coverage. Partly because of um, time, I'm going to focus on uh, four parties, but also because uh, I think the position of the People's Party on climate change is so ridiculous that to give it any, uh, any oxygen, any effort uh, on my part would just be to give it legitimacy that it doesn't, um, doesn't deserve. So uh, start with the Liberals. Um, they have committed to net zero emissions by 2050. That's a bit of jargon, so it doesn't mean zero emissions. It means that we will suck out of the atmosphere as much uh, greenhouse gas emissions as we put up. Um, so there's various different ways of doing that, but um, one of their policy proposals that just came out is to plant two billion trees. So uh, that's one thing that would help suck more carbon dioxide uh, out of the atmosphere. Um, I do think that's uh, a good initiative. I am all for uh, natural um, approaches to climate change rather than trying to come up with um, technology that is very expensive and that we don't know uh, whether it will actually work. We know trees work. Um, other parts of the Liberals' platform, um, obviously the, the key cornerstone uh, is the carbon price that is already in place. Um, frankly, the price is way too low uh, to actually incentivize the kind of uh, change that we need, and they don't seem to be interested in ramping that up. Um, in any quicker than the already existing. So it does increase over time, but the amount that it increases is, is not um, sufficient to get where we need to go. Um, they've also just recently announced some tax breaks uh, to promote clean technology. Um, and they do have an element of um, 
what's generally referred to as uh, just transition uh, within their platform, which means that um, we, we do wish to take care of the workers in the sectors that are going to um, have to end as a result of the transition to a clean, um, clean economy. So um, particularly you would think about the oil patch, but there are various other economic sectors where we want to make sure that uh, those workers get um, good, good green uh, jobs in the future. Uh, so the Conservatives' main policy is obviously to repeal the carbon price. Um, they do have some other vague proposals, um, and they also seem to be very much focused on this idea that they can um, help other countries reduce their emissions rather than do anything at home. Uh, to that, I would say we have one of the highest per capita emissions in the world. I don't see why other countries that are um, economically worse off than we are, um, should have the burden uh, of this issue. We need to be leaders. Uh, in short, a sheer government would be a disaster for the climate. Uh, the NDP would keep the par carbon price and tweak it a bit. They also propose a Canadian climate bank, which I think is quite interesting, uh, which would provide $3 billion for low-carbon innovation. Uh, they would increase funding to things like electric vehicles and also low-emissions transit projects. Uh, and they have a big sort of emphasis on uh, trying to create manufacturing uh, jobs in green energy and smart grids so, and so forth uh, in Canada. The Greens, uh, not surprisingly, have far and away the most ambitious plan. Uh, they would double our emissions reductions targets, and I'd say that's really a critical thing that uh, needs to be addressed. So there was a, um, uh, a United Nations uh, General Assembly um, meeting just a week ago, and there, the, the effort there was to try to get countries to ramp up their Paris targets because we know that with the existing commitments we will not uh, stay under the temperature target of 1.5 degrees or even 2 degrees. Um, so it's good to see uh, that the Greens are proposing to double those targets. Um, and they would also raise the carbon tax to $130 a tonne by 2030, eliminate fossil fuel subsidies, which are massive in this country, ban fracking and oil imports, and eliminate coal. And they also have a very ambitious uh, proposal for retrofitting of buildings. And there's other things, but I will end it there because I'm running out of time. See the advantage of having academics around the table is that they're never shy about sharing their ideas and they're also not shy about making sure you understand where they stand. Uh, we are in a school of policy studies so you don't necessarily need to agree with everything that is said, but we do hope that you will engage in an active and informed fashion. The objective here that I think everybody shares is to contribute to an informed conversation on some very difficult issues. Um, and an informed conversation also involves identifying not just um, the issues that have been identified by the parties uh, and by the candidates, but also trying to draw attention to some elements that politicians for any number of reasons prefer not to talk about or things where often research and sort of some academic thinking might be further ahead uh, than um, perhaps where some of the party platforms and some of the popular opinion is on that particular issue. And so on the last go around, uh, I want to ask each of our four panelists to see what what you believe that has not sort of been spoken about uh, that warrants greater attention and perhaps in what fashion. And so um, maybe uh, if I may, I'll, I'll start with, with Jenna this time and we'll go down the, uh, down the table and then end with uh, Alicia. Great. So I'm just going to mention three issues that have been mentioned in this election cycle but are certainly taking a back seat to pharmacare. Uh, the first one that hasn't been getting a lot of attention and, and going off of Alicia's comments is the issue of Indigenous health. The Liberals did make an announcement last week uh, that they were looking to revamp uh, health care under the Indian Act uh, and create what they call the distinction-based system, which would be co-developed with First Nations, Métis, and Inuit communities. I think this is an important conversation, as well as talking about issues of infrastructure, uh, of mold, of of water um, and the fact that uh, the health of vulnerable um, uh, communities uh, is actually uh, quite shocking the state um, of some uh, uh, health systems on the reserve and this is something we should be as urgent uh, as anything else that we're talking about. Uh, there has been increasing attention to the opioid crisis, particularly from the NDP, has made it a little bit more uh, visible in their platform. Both the NDP and Greens say they will declare a federal public health emergency if elected. Um, that is something that the Liberals have resisted doing, um, and the Conservatives as well. 
Uh, they have not spoken to that. Uh, the big issue with the opioid crisis is whether or not drug use will be decriminalized. Um, so you're starting to wade into a whole other set of issues that are sort of outside of Health Canada's jurisdiction, but whether or not that will help lessen the problem of overdoses. Uh, and then the last issue that is mentioned in every platform that I've seen so far, but only as sort of a throwaway comment, is we need to improve mental health care in Canada. This is one of the biggest sort of um, uh, shortcomings of the Medicare Act that most mental health care is not covered because it does not necessarily ha happen in a hospital or in a primary care setting uh, and therefore is not covered by provincial health plans, not required to be. Um, and this is, I think, getting to be a, a crisis uh, that it's really our area of health care that people have the least access to unless they have private funds. Uh, and that's something that the, the parties should be speaking to. Yeah, so I'm not shy about my opinions. Um, I've got two kids, and um, this election will largely determine whether or not they have a uh, livable planet um, for their future. Um, I think that the dilemma for our environmentalists in this election is that there's really a strong sense of betrayal um, that the Trudeau government has so strongly supported the oil industry, uh, the most obvious example being that they purchased the Trans Mountain Pipeline. Um, but on the other hand, punishing him and the Liberal Party at the ballot box might end up uh, delivering a sheer government, which would be an environmental catastrophe. So um, that, I think, is the essential dilemma that we're dealing with. I think it's notable that both the NDP and Greens have committed to abandoning the pipeline if they're elected. Um, so if we do end up in a scenario where we have a Liberal minority government uh, with either of those two parties joining in some sort of coalition, it would be really interesting to see how uh, that dynamic is going to play out. Um, I think that we, ha although we have seen a bit more attention to the notion of a just transition, uh, I think it's sad to see that the industry and the media and many politicians are still trying to sell this notion uh, to Alberta that our oil is somehow cleaner and better than the oil in other parts of the world and that we need to continue exploiting it in the near term. Uh, the reality is that the tar sands are dirty and expensive and there has already been a significant exodus of foreign investment, not because of government policy, but because of economic realities. Uh, and in terms of scientific realities, uh, the fossil fuel industry globally has five times more oil, gas and coal in reserve than we can afford to burn if we want to avoid a complete breakdown of the climate system. And yet they are still looking for more. So they're betting against us actually meeting our targets. So we need a complete moratorium on exploration as a first starting point if we actually want a livable planet for the next generation. That's a very hard truth uh, in this country, but I think that it's undeniable. So three things. Um, one of my wishes would be that uh, the renewed Official Languages Act could force the Official Languages Commissioner to go to court. What I mean with that is that the office has a wealth of information on the amount of complaints that are placed by Canadians. And we all know that there are some bad boys and bad girls within the federal uh, system and um, agencies and certain departments uh, receive far more complaints than others. But nothing forces the official languages commissioner to make use of that data which has been provided by Canadians and is paid for by Canadians. And so when there are uh, repeat offenders, I wish that the official languages commissioner was forced to take these people to court uh, and, to, uh, and that there would be real consequences to the violation and the repeat violation of the Official Languages Act. Uh, that might be a little bit controversial, uh, but that, that is something that uh, I think should be happening because Canadians pay for that data anyway, so why not use it? Uh, another thing I see with official languages generally and less with the Official Languages Act per se, and what I perceive is a, uh, an increased frustration on behalf of uh, English Canadians to not have the opportunity to, to, to learn the other official language. And so uh, there is, and this is among all provinces, there is uh, far more demand than there is offer for immersion programs, for example. And there is not enough funding for those programs. Uh, the federal government does offer some extra funding to uh, the provinces, but it's not nearly sufficient. Uh, and there's a lot of places in Canada where French immersion is not even offered, period. Uh, and, and that 
creates a lot of a lot of frustration on behalf of uh, of Canadians who would like for their children to have that opportunity to become bilingual, and it's just not something that's on offer. And for the first time in 50 years this year, we've had statistics that demonstrate that younger Canadians place less value on official languages than their parents. Uh, so this this is something that I find concerning, uh, and. Um, I think there, there's a lot to work, the, a lot of work to do on that front. Uh, the last thing won't be about uh, French and English, but actually on indigenous languages. So when uh, Bill C-91 uh, was passed in the House of Commons, uh, the Liberal government uh, was uh, very happy to, uh, to mention that this bill had been co-drafted with indigenous peoples. This is not entirely true. It was co-drafted with the Assembly of First Nations, and uh, a lot of uh, indigenous groups, including uh, representatives from the Inuit community were actually not very happy at all with Bill C-91 and how much protection it gave to indigenous languages. Um, and none of, the party are, none of the parties are talking about reopening Bill C-91 to uh, further protect and uh, make, you, make sure that uh, services are offered in uh, indigenous languages where necessary. Uh, so I think this is a this is a huge caveat that we're having in uh, the conversation on uh, on languages in Canada right now. Um, so I actually think that uh, most of the parties have, on a surface level, covered most of the issues. Um, however, uh, my issues with um, how the parties um, have made these promises is in their presentation and their delivery, and less so about what they're talking about. So the first point that I want to make is that. Um, most of the parties are taking this pan-Indigenous approach, and so Indigenous people and nations are diverse, and you can't have a one solution for all Indigenous people. And so I think the Liberal Party tried to address this a little bit in its platform when it broke it down by Inuit, Métis, and First Nations. Um, I think the Green Party has done this um, somewhat as well. Um, in terms of allowing, uh, if they do get elected, allowing nations to opt out of uh, the Indian Act. Um, and so what this suggests to me is that the Green Party is not simply making a policy about Indigenous people, but they're allowing, to indig they're allowing Indigenous people to co-decide on policy. Um, the second is how Indigenous issues um, are presented more broadly uh, within this election, and they're primarily siloed. And so while I do believe that Indigenous issues deserve their own place in the election and in platforms, um, presenting them solely as their own policy area perpetuates a narrative that Indigenous issues are Indigenous problems, not Canadian problems. Um, and so Indigenous issues overlap, like I said, with the economy, with healthcare, with the environment, but they're not presented as such. And to me, this points to a much larger um, issue of none of the parties actually recognizing Indigenous nations as partners in policy making, but rather as people to make policies for and about. Um, and finally, the thing that is missing from all of the parties and this election more broadly is the genocide that's been committed against Indigenous people. And this is a finding in both the TRC and the National Inquiry, and it's not being talked about. Um, the word is not being used, and I think that's really significant. Um, it makes it really difficult to have reconciliation when no party um, can sort of acknowledge this because we can't move forward without acknowledging this injustice. And so I think this word needs to be used and I think parties um, need to actually acknowledge it. So this is the opportunity for you to weigh in. There's a couple of ways for you to do so. Uh, if you have an electronic device with you, you can go to slido.com and use the hashtag MPA20 to pose your question or you can also download the app to your phone. If you're going to be coming to future talks, you may want to download the app because you'll have future opportunity to avail yourself of the app. And so, but for those of you who are digital um, uh, immigrants like myself, there is also the analog microphone back there for you uh, should you not have brought your device and you wish to pose your question in that fashion. While you're contemplating your question, I think you remember that, for instance, on issues such as language, uh, there's about 200 writings across the country where francophones matter, and there's about 100 writings where francophones in many ways are the swing vote. Um, so, uh, and this Kingston, of course, being an officially designated bilingual community by the Ontario 
government. Um, and at the same time, we're also seeing those dynamics emerge on the Aboriginal side, in particular Manitoba and Saskatchewan, where we now have a growing number of ridings uh, where the Indigenous vote is uh, a, a significant determinant of the outcomes. And so I think this also uh, um, is, is some of the driver of some of the change that we're seeing, some of the priorities that these issues are receiving. I think one of the elements that you've heard here that always sort of a little bit dismays me about politics is that I think all four of the panelists in many ways presented their particular policy issue and expertise as a social project. That's something that we need government to pay attention to, to have a plan and to invest in. And, you know, if I, I sometimes get the feeling when you look at the news, it's simply about which sort of tax break we're going to give this week to or this day to that particular special interest group. And so, um, so I think the, the, it shows that we can have social projects and the need for, um, for the state to be able to come to the table with concrete ideas about these projects. I think it also demonstrates the importance of having expanded somewhat of the policy pluralism that we have. You know, conventionally, I think we've talked about three parties in Anglophone Canada, sometimes perhaps some attention to the bloc. Uh, and the fact that we have two additional parties has broadened the spectrum um, of ideas that is available to the electorate. And so I think much of what we see here ultimately comes down to the classic challenges that we have in politics about what should the role of government be in society? Um, what should the role of government be on any one prior uh, policy issue? And that in many ways also determines where it ranks in priorities. And some of what we see is that different parties and candidates give different priority to different issues. And then there's always the controversy about we got to pay for all this and that resources are scarce. And so ultimately, many of the platform issues are about um, where do we want to allocate resources and how do we want to allocate those resources on the premise that we want to advance human flourishing freedom, equality, and justice. And then in Canada, we understand freedom not just to be an individual matter, but a collective, uh, an issue of collective freedoms and collective rights. And I think that resonated with all four of the panelists here. So this is the opportunity for you to, uh, to, to weigh in with your questions. So I think we've got a good suite of questions here. So why don't I ask each of you to weigh in on perhaps one or two of those in the five minutes or so that we have left. I can just speak briefly on the constitution issue. Just the, the there are several provinces that are challenging the carbon price um, as a constitutional issue, but thus far the courts have uh, upheld it. Um, so I would say that I don't know that it's either helping or hindering, but it hasn't it hasn't hindered um, the constitution hasn't hindered the advancements uh, in that particular area. Um, I'm sure there are lots of domestic issues that we have uh, missed on this panel. And in terms of the environment, there are a huge number. I'm not an expert on environmental impact assessment. Some of my colleagues are. But um, there has been a big debate about uh, environmental impact assessment uh, in this country. Water is a huge issue um, also for um, indigenous rights perspectives. Um, and I would, I would say, uh, yes, very, very true on the science funding. Uh, we, we could use a lot more uh, focus on uh, funding basic research into uh, not just mitigation uh, technologies for climate change, but also uh, the, the technologies and the efforts that we will need to, um, to adapt to the inevitable amount of uh, change that we will say, see, especially in areas like agriculture, where we're really going to have to um, do a lot of work to make sure that we can, uh, we can grow crops in a, in a different climate. I'll leave it there. Uh, so I'll speak to the federalism issue. Um, this is going to be huge in pharmacare. Uh, it's unusual to have a, sort of a federally-led healthcare policy. Um, it's essential for pharmacare to take federal leadership and have funding because it's that negotiating power that we have. Um, if we negotiate for drug prices across a number of provinces and then have provinces sort of cooperate uh, and use federal policy as their guide. Uh, the Liberals are actually presenting this sort of as a federal-provincial battle. Uh, the last time Justin Trudeau spoke on this, he basically said it's going to be him and Doug Ford at the table and they're going to have to be debating about
about pharmacare and what that's going to look like um, and sort of presenting himself of who he kept saying who do you want at that table um, to sort of fight about what the federal role is going to be and, and sort of convincing the provinces to go along with pharmacare. Uh, as I mentioned, uh, the report recommends that they don't convince uh, the provinces to go along with pharmacare. They offer the funding to do so. They offer the infrastructure. They offer the um, expertise. And it's up to the provinces of whether or not they want to adopt that. Um, you can imagine over time that if there's federal funding available for universal drug coverages and provinces don't take it, uh, that will become a large political issue in their own provinces. And I think that's the best way to let each province work that out. Um, but the federal government has to lead ahead and have very strong leadership on this issue, in my opinion, um, because with, it just can't be coordinated individually on a provincial level. It doesn't. You lose the economic savings of doing it sort of on the federal um, scale. Uh, and the question about basic science is a great point. Of course, we wouldn't have any, we wouldn't have the issues about pharmacare and the expense of drugs and all the drugs that are available without basic science enabling that. Um, there is a recognition in the liberal government especially, they paid a lot of attention to the issue of rare diseases. The fact there's been so much research going into these relatively rare diseases, but the drugs that have been developed for them are astronomically expensive, sometimes over a million dollars a year for one individual. So the question has been basic science has sort of created this problem of what is the government's role in paying for drugs um, that are very expensive but are only for a, a small number of Canadians. And they have committed significant funding to that. Okay, so I'm going to speak to the uh, federalism question as well as the question specifically on Indigenous issues. Um, so in terms of federalism in the Constitution, some, I, some Indigenous communities have found that the Constitution has helped them in their land rights and their Aboriginal treaty rights. Um, others have found that it has hindered them. Um, one thing that I think has hindered most Indigenous people uh, with federalism is how um, Indigenous people are essentially under the Indian Act wards of the state uh, under the federal government, yet basic services like education and healthcare fall under the provinces. And this has caused a huge, huge, huge problem for um, Indigenous healthcare. Um, and so one way that I think that we can sort of overcome this is by all parties implementing Jordan's principle. Um, and the NDP has specifically stated that they will uh, implement that. And what that is is just ensuring that there's no discrimination in healthcare um, about who is responsible for Indigenous children when it comes to providing basic services. Um, in terms of Indigenous issues being diverse and conflicting, yes, of course, but you can also say that about Canadians as well. <laughs> like Canadians have diverse and conflicting interests. Um, the way that I think that you can address that is through co-developing legislation, co-developing frameworks, um, and not taking a pan-Indigenous approach. So actually listening and consulting with Indigenous people, and when you consult with them, listening to what they have to say and not just doing it as a way to say that we have consulted with Indigenous people. Uh, the question of language is profoundly entrenched in federalism and the Constitution, and uh, this has raised some particular issues. So for example, uh, with respect to the province of Quebec, of course, uh, the Quebec government is not super fond of a strengthening of the Official Languages Act because it would mean further protections for Anglo-Quebecers, uh, which some members of the uh, Quebec government see as a threat. In fact, uh, Premier Legault came out uh, a couple of weeks ago with a grossly, like a whole Christmas list of requests for the federal leaders, among which was a request for the Charter of the, uh, Charter of the French Language to override the Official Languages Act for businesses who are in Quebec but under federal jurisdiction, such as banks and telecommunications, for example. Uh, so this is uh, obviously a sticking issue. And the only party that's been willing to speak to that is the NDP, which is, I think, trying to recreate the orange way of 2011 in Quebec, it's really not working out very well for Mr. Singh right now. Uh, obviously, in the domain of education, uh, provinces have uh, the bigger end of the stick here. And with respect to uh, funding for official language education, the federal government already provides for a yearly transfer. It's called the Official Languages Education Program, which is meant to both fund uh, minority language schools, immersion programs, and core uh, French programs in, in provinces like Ontario. Uh, the problem with this is that, of course, once the transfer of funds is being granted to the province, we lose sight of where that money goes. And there has been a lot of controversy regarding provinces actually spending that money on things that are not related at all to language. Uh, and the federal government cannot really force the province to, uh, to, to let them know where exactly that money has been going. 
Um, and uh, finally, regarding uh, the Constitution itself, well, uh, there is uh, the problem regarding Section 23, and very quickly, Section 23 states that parents whose first language is the language of the official minority in their province can send their kids to uh, the uh, school where that language is uh, the language of use. Uh, but most uh, Francophones outside of Quebec and Anglo-Quebecers actually live in exogamous relationships with which means that uh, one of the parents speaks a language and the other doesn't. Uh, and that creates situations where uh, minority schools are actually being overwhelmingly uh, seen as uh, places of assimilation. Uh, we don't know what the um, solution to that is, but it's constitutionally entrenched, so there is a a lot of money to be bet on the fact that no federal party will want to touch that with a 10-foot pole. I'm going to stop there. So you got a sense here in the uh, in the final interventions just how important the fact is that we live in a federation and the intergovernmental relations part, so we can all come up with great policies, but actually operationalizing these within the constitutional governmental framework that we have remains a challenge. And so uh, on that note, it, we got a fantastic sort of overview of some of the challenges on the environment. On the federalism side, I would submit to you that, um, for instance, many of the challenges and the most interesting things are actually happening at the municipal level and many places where we're going to be able to make the greatest, have the greatest impact and where many of these policies are going to hit uh, hit hit most uh, uh, most importantly is at the uh, is at the municipal level and and watch here at the School of Policy Studies uh, for some more uh, more debate and capacity around that particular issue. Uh, on pharmacare, of course, again, you've, you've learned that it's all about money and we started out with a 50-50 split and the provinces are very reticent about any commitments on that because they've had a difficult experience with the federal government uh, where the provinces get stuck with, uh, feel like they get stuck with paying the tap. Um, and so, uh, so I think you, you got a very nice insight here today on some of the challenges. Again, on indigenous issues, um, just how heterogeneous this is, both on the policy side and on the people side, um, and, uh, and, and how that drives the complexity of, of one size certainly does not fit all. And on a languages issue, I think you got a nice sense of that. Uh, even though we've been at this for 50 years, this continues to be a pressing and, and evolving um, issue and that it now not just includes uh, French and English, but it includes uh, um, uh, indigenous languages uh, and both their preservation and their flourishing. So I hope you learned something today and you're taking away some ideas that, uh, that you didn't have before you came here today. And so I want to thank our four panelists, uh, Carla Tianhara from Environmental Studies and Development Studies, Stephanie Schwinar uh, du Collège Militaire Royal, um, Elisha Corbett from Political Studies, and Jenna Healy from the Department of History. Um, a round of applause for them all. Thank you.